I think that the the sad truth is that those types of organizations often go through lobbying groups. And so it's to the, the lobbying representation and to government to be the advocates for those types of organizations. I think what's also lost is that, you know, I talk with our customers every day. I talk with dozens of customers and they're all interested in using generative AI in various ways. And they are all nervous about using generative AI for a lot of very valid reasons. And they're looking to government. They're looking for regulation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence AI stands at the forefront of technological evolution. With experts predicting it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, make a huge impact on healthcare, on education, but it could also impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling the innovation that drives our economy? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives. We've had industry leaders, government officials, to leaders of advocacy groups. Together, they address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Lexi Kassin with us today. She's a lead data and AI strategist at Databricks, a leading AI company. She's also an AI ethicist running her own podcast. I invited her on this show as it's very important to get different perspectives towards framing AI legislation. And I wanted to get a perspective from the industry, especially how it relates to AI ethics. Welcome, Lexi. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Thanks so much for having me here, Sanjay. Great. Lexi, you are currently in the UK. So I'm going to start off with a question on the EU AI Act which, you know, they reached some kind of a political consensus on December 8, 2023. Can you just give us some of your thoughts on what the EU AI Act means? Because it's probably in 2025, it will go into practical reality. Absolutely. The EU AI Act is a very encompassing regulation that is going to be impacting organizations both within the EU and beyond, because it does apply to the data for which you're processing and, and the people for whom that data represents or of whom that data represents. So it will have implications globally for organizations who are dealing with AI and really AI broadly. So one of the things that's particularly unique about the EU AI Act from its inception was that it started a bit before the big wave of generative AI came. And so a lot of the emphasis is on more traditional data science, machine learning, AI applications that are not necessarily using generative AI. The agreement that was reached in December extended into some of those generative capabilities. There's been an increased focus on particularly frontier and foundation models and how those are being developed. But what I find really encouraging about the EU AI Act as an ethicist is that it does have a risk-based profiling capability 
for all models, which is particularly impactful to organizations who are not necessarily in regulated industries, otherwise regulated industries, but whom are using AI. These types of risk assessments and the conformity assessments that go along with them are really going to start to impact the companies in other verticals that are normally less confined. So things like retail, manufacturing, you know, some of the other industries where you simply don't have that same emphasis on regulation and compliance in the same way. Lexi, there's a lot that you said that I have just wanted to ask a couple of follow-on questions. You saw this with GDPR. They kind of took the lead. U.S., obviously, we've seen the executive order from President Biden, and we've seen over 100 bills in Congress. But we are also in an election year from the conversations, the various conversations I've had on the Hill with members of Congress. I don't see a comprehensive legislation happening in the United States. Is it going to be similar to the GDPR that we basically are living with the European AI Act? Because if when you look at AI companies, I mean, you know, yes, there are some wonderful French and German companies like Mistral and others, but primarily it is a U.S.-driven innovation that is happening. I mean, it's a global innovation. I don't want people to start jumping on me on that. But how is it going to impact? And you talked about the frontier and foundation models. Is there going to be any implications for American innovation for the EUA Act? There will be because American companies would be equally subject to the risk-based assessments provided that the models are being used on EU citizens. For example, if you are a global company headquartered in the States, but you're using a model, for example, for hiring decisions or advancement decisions that would then touch your European entities and the people being hired in Europe, it would still be required to go through the conformity assessment as part of a high-risk solution. Similarly, if you're in an industry, for example, like education, where you're doing tests and those tests are international, again, if it's something where a European student might be put through a test like that there, and it's going through an algorithm, that would be required to go through a conformity assessment. So this will absolutely have ramifications for U.S. companies. You'd mentioned about regulations in the states and whether we're going to see something comprehensive. I agree. I don't think that there's going to be something in this year coming into an election cycle. There's a great desire to see regulation from the public, but I think that there's a lot of concern that we will overly regulate and put ourselves at a disadvantage. And really, it's that competitive disadvantage that is driving a lot of the resistance, I think, right now. The idea being, if we restrict our companies from doing something, but other companies are doing it, they're going to take the market. There's a fair bit of that in other areas as well. One of the things particularly interesting in the EUAI Act is that there are some pretty extensive caveats when it comes to defense, the military use, um, and so forth, that are specifically carved out because, again, obviously a much higher stakes here. But the idea is that if other or if other military organizations around the world are using AI in particular ways, it puts you at a disadvantage from a defense perspective if you're not or if you're unable to do. And so there are some pretty big caveats uh, around defense use. And I feel like there's kind of a corollary with respect to business. Yeah, 
And I, I think you're going to see similar carve-outs for defense and national security from what I understand, at least in the U.S. Uh, but obviously, that's not happening this year. We might see some incremental regulation that would come in. Lexi, given your background as an ethicist, where do you see the biggest ethical risks right now in the AI systems that are being developed and used? I think that the biggest ethical problems, and this is, this might sound silly, I know that there are some very large-scale problems that could be encountered. And obviously, we look at things like deep fakes or election tampering and things like that. But really, the ones that concern me are often the ones that are hidden in plain sight, that are in for reinforcing biases and systemic problems that people just assume is normal and therefore isn't necessarily tackled with as much enthusiasm and gusto or evaluated with so much scrutiny that we're seeing some of these larger, you know, more existential threat style things, which I think of course, we need to be able to look at those and be able to evaluate existential risk. However, I think the ones that are certainly more pervasive are these smaller, but still very difficult to manage and impactful types of use cases. Can you be a little more specific? Are you talking about things like hiring and those kinds of things? You said the ones that are hiding uh, right in plain sight. Can you just be more specific? Sure. So I think of it as you know, certainly things like hiring and so forth, and those get a lot of attention. But it's also things like pricing models that don't consider, for example, who the audience of that particular good might be that would then potentially disadvantage groups that are already disadvantaged. It could be geospatial analyses that continue to impact particularly communities of color who are constantly getting kind of the worst end of the deal on a lot of the decisions made because someone looks at a map and says, oh, this area doesn't look like it has a particularly high net income and, you know, we can dump waste there and things like that. Those are the types of decisions which, you know, this is why I particularly like the EUAI Act approach in looking at a risk-based assessment as opposed to specific types of use cases only it doesn't necessarily outline every single thing that could be considered high risk and leaves then up for interpretation whether there's a high risk to a particular community, which I think is a good approach. In the United States, a lot of what we've seen in terms of what's come out so far around regulation is sort of reinforcing that the things that were already illegal without AI are also illegal with AI. Discrimination, for example, in hiring, if you can prove that there was discrimination, is illegal. And it, the kind of jurisdiction and jurisprudence of, of that is put into the hands of the same organizations that would do that if it were a person making a decision without AI. And so there's still the ability to prosecute against those types of incidents. But I think the ones that are not as easy to prove, are not necessarily as clear in that they are provided to like specific things like housing or education and so forth. These other opportunities and other applications are the ones that concern me because they do get, they're very prevalent, first of all, and they do get less scrutiny. And so those are the ones that I think pose the biggest threat, really. There's just so many. So just to follow up on that point, I think you made uh, 
an excellent point is, so how can some of the communities that you're talking about that are historically marginalized or have been discriminated, how can they equitably participate and benefit from, you know, AI and the advances in AI? So there are a lot of there are a lot of issues there. And it's not just the communities within the United States. Some of the things that I'm particularly interested in and evaluating and, and researching are how we can get more data from underrepresented areas in the world and underrepresented groups into some of these models. This is something that becomes a challenge when, for example, you scrape data from the internet in certain forums because those forums are not representative of the world at large. And the information as labeled, the information as adopted into these models is not representative of a broad worldview necessarily. You know, to the extent that we can get more data coming in, that we can bring in more representation into these models and get content from different voices, I think that's really crucial, particularly in the age of generative AI. Otherwise, what we're going to get from generative AI is the worldview of those few who are in the internet, wherever they had scraped from, to just see that. So that's something that you know, personally, I think is a benefit to all. So Lexi, what in your view should be some core ethical principles that should be embedded in AI systems then? So it's funny, I've made a couple of frameworks of these over time, and they come down to kind of broadly the same things. So first and foremost, that it's human-centric, that we remember that data is very often of and about human beings, and that we need to make sure that anything that we're doing with these systems has humans at the heart, has a heart in a way, so that we're not making decisions purely from a standpoint of profit or optimization or what have you. They need to be as fair and unbiased as we can make them. And I use those words carefully because saying something is flat out fair or unbiased is a logical leap that I don't think we can make at this time, but we can do better. We can always try to do better. They need to be safe and secure. So they need to be able to ensure that what we do with them, the decisions that we make or the information that we provide does not put people in harm's way. And that from a security standpoint, of course, we're maintaining good, proper security around the models themselves. They need to be efficient. You know, so from an ecological standpoint, we don't want to be you know, using more compute than we need to. We want to make sure that they're as efficient a, or as simple models we can make them so that we're not taxing our resources. We also want to make sure they're resilient and robust. So they're able to withstand variations in data that we're constantly monitoring and taking accountability for that, which is another principle that I would put out there. Of course, that they're compliant, but compliance will change place to place. To me, compliance is sort of a minimum baseline. It's like the bar you must pass, not the one that you necessarily aim for. And want to make sure that as we do this, we embed as much transparency and explainability as possible because trusting a model in a way, it's sort of a catch-22. You want a model that thinks better than you do, but you want to understand it. So how can we build in mechanisms for transparency that are human consumable in a way? So those are some of the things that I, I put out there. Those are a lot. Transparency, think of it as a human, 
be open, be compliant, be ecologically, you know, safe and considerate a lot. How about cultural values? Should different cultural value systems also shape policies for AI globally, in your view? Absolutely. I think that there that's one of the challenges with having such a big presence coming from the US, I say, as a representative of a US company and as an American myself. But I think that the differences in cultural values and social mores around the world necessitate having a different style of interaction with AI for different areas and different cultures. What gets particularly challenging there then is when you have a culture, a jurisdiction, essentially, is not one and only one culture. And so governments are tasked with making regulations that are kind of best guess based on where they stand and where they sit on certain cultural values as opposed to everyone's cultural values. Even within a state within the United States, you would have different groups who have vastly different beliefs about what AI should be doing and how it should be doing it that may not agree. And it's the main challenge of government to reconcile that um, and to try to determine what really are those core human rights, human foundational beliefs that they would want to instantiate into law, uh, getting really into the the crux of what law is meant to do. Lexi, just to follow up, is AI becoming English-based, Western-oriented system, which, you know, you could say, hey, look at the population of the world and the population of, let's say, maybe the U.S. and the different languages that are spoken, the cultures, et cetera, that could be a real challenge, wouldn't it? Many of the models, the generative AI models in particular, are English-speaking, Western philosophy primarily. That said, there are some other languages that are represented, uh, more or less. I think that it depends a bit on, again, what data has been brought in, how it's been trained. I think what could be a really interesting way to evaluate that is to kind of look at creating different models of the languages of different in different areas that could be more reflective. It would take a lot more compute. So again, it would be retraining a foundation model on all of the structures and concepts of a different language and, and particularly in different areas, different philosophies, different values that could give more variety. Now, that said, I think there's also benefit to having an interchange of ideas and being able to see, being able to challenge that the view that's coming from just the Silicon Valley companies in the States, looking at English, primarily written by Americans, that the concepts embedded in that do not hold elsewhere. And that you know, it gives you potential to have a more nuanced answer to something, even a simple question that could give perspective, that could start to really shift the ideals of culture. But that also takes people being open to that shift, which is a big ask. But that's an important point that at some point needs to be addressed because, as I said, you know, there's vast swaths of population that are outside uh, the United States. Lexi, is it possible, how feasible is it to create unbiased data sets and truly fair AI systems? You work for a large company. 
that's involved in some of these things. What is your view? Can we truly create unbiased data sets? So my view, and this is not from my being a part of a large company, this is my own personal view. I think it's extremely difficult to create an unbiased data set. When you look at all of the statistical and cognitive biases that pervade data and data collection and even meta studies and so forth, it's a collection of biases at that point. You have to be really deliberate about trying to create representative groups. And even then, it's unlikely because of things like self-selection and so forth, being able to get access to data, being able to get funding for data collection in the way that you want to. These all introduce biases. And so it's important to try. And it's also important to caveat what may be going on and to identify that and as best as possible to mitigate so that you have more representative data set. But it's a real challenge. And I don't necessarily see a great easy solution. It's certainly not a technical one. And that's part of the the problem with you know, from the start, from before you even look at doing AI, it's, you know, you look at what data you can get and is that going to be sufficient for the application you have in mind and take a real hard look at what the data is saying, how it was retrieved, how it was collected, from whom, all of that plays in. In terms of fairness and I, I would say equitable representation, it's going to be tough. Fairness in particular is the challenging concept, I suppose. What seems fair to one person may seem incredibly unfair to another. And that, you know, in a way is is core to a lot of the conflicts in our history as humans. That's not something that's easily overcome just because we have AI. You know, you said it's almost, it's very difficult to have fair, unbiased data systems. Should we ban certain applications of AI based on ethical concerns or restrict them? But that is actually a big part of what's been done with the EUAI Act and their unacceptable risk category. Again, this is something that is cultural. Until and unless there is some amazing worldwide group that can come together and establish laws that we say these are the fundamental principles of human rights globally. I don't see this changing. But the EUAI Act at least took a stab at what they see as too risky or too problematic. And it's things like facial recognition in public spaces. You know, if you've not consented from a privacy perspective to be known to be in a place or to be known to be doing something, you're not allowed to be identified doing it. It's things like social scoring systems, which have actually been in place in other nations uh, already. And they have said, this is unacceptable for us. It is very much cultural. These are things that are not universal rules and they're not universal belief. What's acceptable in one place is not acceptable elsewhere. And that's exactly what we're seeing coming out in this law. Lexi, have been, there been some ethics disasters in other technologies that we can learn from to prevent AI harms? I mean, I think a lot of the ethical disasters that we've seen have come from areas that we now regulate more strongly. Some good examples of that are in things like medical research. You know, there, especially, I can speak to a couple of studies in the States where for example, for a very long time, women were not included in medical studies, and that caused fatalities because medications were brought onto the market 
that had not been tested on women that had not been studied in their effects. And once it was used, because it was used across both men and women, women were dying from the ramifications of these medications. So they've changed the rules. And they said, you have to be able to, if you're going to market something to both men and women, you have to include women in the study. This is no longer optional. And, you know, looking at some of those review board sorts of things of how can we leverage this? How can we look at studying these new opportunities, new technologies, new medications, whatever it might be, and ensure that we're going to get valid results? The other one, of course, is those same types of review boards look at things like consent. For example, there were multiple studies in the United States on minority groups where consent was not properly given. And the lasting impact, not only on those who participated, but on the entire community were vast. Um, You know, these were horrifying things that Had review boards been in place, had these studies been required to go through an assessment in advance, they would never have happened in this day and age. But it's because they happened in prior times that we now have these requirements. And so I think it's worth looking at some of the ways that we've evaluated medical research and the requirements around medical research to then be able to imitate or replicate some of that in AI, which for what it's worth, a lot of organizations are sort of doing of their own accord now. Uh, A lot of the companies that I'm talking with are setting up AI review boards internally, AI governance boards internally to look at things like this, to evaluate those risks. Any regulated industry that's been working with a risk management framework has something along these lines already because it's been required for decades. And now it needs to extend to other industries that have not previously been approaching this. You know, one of the things you're talking about is how do we get the word out? So what kind of educational initiatives uh, would best spread awareness of AI ethics issues, uh, Lexi? Goodness, I don't know. The funny part is that uh, much of my career has been spent in marketing, but when it comes to this sort of like PSA stuff, I'm not quite sure. If we could find something as catchy as some of the PSAs from my youth, I think it would be great. <laughs> I remember ads back in the day of the egg being put into a frying pan saying, this is your brain on drug. Like, how do you, I want to feel, I feel like it's something like that. Like, how can you get some iconic, you know, really poignant message around, no, don't trust AI. Oh my God. Take it with a big grain of salt. I see lawsuits coming. I see lawsuits happening if you do something like that. I see lawsuits happening anyway. Anyway, uh, (laughs) legal professions, kind of, this is the second coming, but anyway. You say that, but at the same time, you know, a lot of their research tools are being turned over to AI. The paralegals and some of those theater professions that would have you know, moved people into legal roles are now being automated in various ways. I think there's going to be a lot more call for lawyers, but also a lot more call for AI in the and, law. Uh, and it's already happening. I mean, you see things, tools like Einstein and others. No, that's an important point. Lexi, from your perspective, who should be liable if an AI system causes harm? The developer, the deployer? or the user, or all of them? I think it's, goodness, it's a bit of all of the above. You know, I think it's certainly beholden to the users to get educated, understand the limitations of what they're using, understand that not everything is 100% factual in generative AI in particular, but also if you're using something that is an algorithm, that if you see something that doesn't 
seem right, that doesn't seem correct, to not just take it on face value. Again, that whole, here's your grain of salt, and just be able to challenge appropriately. I do think that there's a lot of the onus would come down to deployers. That's because developers are putting a model out there with the intention that it can be used in different ways. They put in place safeguards. Most uh, have put in place various safeguards to try to ensure that the model won't do harm. There's no guarantee that you can't get around it. And it's the deployers that are then fine-tuning or that are using that algorithm. I mean, it doesn't even have to be generative AI for what it's worth. You know, techniques that we've used for ages can be used with data that's inappropriate or that causes harm that just because you're the first one to create a linear regression doesn't mean that every linear regression is going to do the right thing. I know that sounds very simple, but I mean, to a great degree, there's that kind of distinction of what are you putting the algorithm through? What are you doing with it? And that's really where the deployers come in. And that's how you've then tailored it to what you're trying to accomplish. Personally, I think that the deployers are going to have a lot of a lot of explaining to do. But the developers also have some liability if they've not put in place safeguards, if they have not put, you know, if they've not trained well, if at some point there's a requirement, for example, to be more inclusive, to be more representative, to include more voices, and they've not done that, then absolutely it shouldn't be used more broadly. And that's something that the EUAI Act, as well as the executive order from the White House and so forth are looking at as to what are the requirements around developing those foundation models. And I think it's really to the developers to conform to that and additional ethical principles wherever possible. But then the deployers really need to be evaluating how they're using it and what it's doing. So it really will depend on the situation is what you're saying, Lexi. Lexi, there's been a debate in terms of open source. Yesterday, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg said he's got Llama 3 coming out, but he's also going to open source AGI. And obviously, there are people who say, hey, that's going too far. But tied to that is this whole issue of a monopoly by large tech companies. What is your view? I mean, open source, closed source, you see these large foundation models. You know, you've got to get these NVIDIA chips. Facebook has amassed $20 billion, $20 billion with a B, of NVIDIA uh, processors and hardware. I don't see too many startups who have that kind of capacity, and Microsoft's done that. There are four, four or five companies. So what is what are your thoughts? Because we've seen this now with social media too. Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI. And sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. I think open source is a very important component of the ecosystem for a few reasons. One is that having open source models means that there's additional scrutiny available you know, those who are looking at open source code bases, of how things are created, what was done, can flag potential risks that perhaps got missed by those who were originally developing and could contribute additional components that would help to, again, provide more data, provide more perspective, get different viewpoints represented and so forth. I think it also helps to ensure that we don't end up with these massive monopolies there's already an antitrust suit against OpenAI and Microsoft. 
for the fact that they've taken such a big chunk of the market right out in of the, the UK, gate. And of right? course, recall, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, the UK. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, not a problem. So, you know, I think that, and it's an interesting one because, of course, Microsoft is a 49% owner of OpenAI. And so it's just shy of holding the majority uh, of that company. So when you think about how tightly coupled that is and how big, you know, how synonymous with LLMs and generative AI chat GPT is, I think it's an interesting starting point from which we need to branch and provide additional capability. I mean, the other part to it, frankly, is when you think about competitive advantage, we were talking about earlier, being able to compete, you need to have something to build from because you don't always have $20 billion to throw at infrastructure. You don't always have a massive amount that you can use to just feed the tokens into the machine and hope for the best. And so I think it's important to be able to leverage these models so that we can get the innovation, so that we can have competition that's healthy, um, and so that we do have the ability to see what AI truly can bring to the world. Now, that said, you know, certainly the, the counter argument is, well, but then it could get into the wrong hands. And so a lot of what we've seen that has been a sort of recommended or proposed is that there would be some sort of a registration process. So if you are going to use something that's an open source model, you're at least saying, you know, you're at least putting out there, this is the model I'm testing, this is what I'm using it for, and some information that could be verified about who's doing it. It's a bit of a challenge when you think about it on a global scale, who's represent, who's holding this database of everybody who's building a thing and how do we make sure that they're not leveraging it to say, oh, well, we'd rather like to do that. And how do we get our hands on these things and try to take a monopoly and so forth? But it's at least a measure that could be taken to, to try to identify where there may be malicious actors and how we could potentially identify bad actors and you know, malicious use. That's great. Lexi, final question for you. How can industry and companies like Databricks play a role in AI regulation? So what I've seen is, uh, thus far is actually quite a lot of industry representation within the regulatory environment, certainly through lobbying groups, but also because the heads of these organizations, including our own, have been present at some of the discussions with government around regulation, around what's possible, around how close we are to some of the really scary things that you know people talk about, these existential risks and so forth. And I think that ability to have kind of the experts in the room is going to be very important because you, know, you saw even with things like social media, which you mentioned earlier, regulators don't necessarily know how it works behind the curtain. And thinking back to some of the questioning of Mark Zuckerberg, for example, about you know how Facebook makes its money and so forth. It became a bit of a joke and we don't want that to happen with AI because the risks are great. And so I think it's important to have industry guiding regulation to some degree. Now, of course, we don't want industry setting the, their own rules and marking their own homework, but providing insights and education to our representatives, to our government, to ensure that they know what we're all up against, really, and what can be done, and then they can say what should be done. So, Lexi, just as a follow-on, I said that would be the last question. You made an interesting point. So, when you look at the hearings, you look at the listening sessions that Senator Schumer has had and others, 
it seems like it's heavily concentrated with large industry experts. Where are the representatives of manufacturing companies? Where are the representatives of smaller educational institutions, community colleges? Where are the representatives of rural healthcare systems, et cetera, all of whom are in some ways going to be impacted. I understand industry is going to play a great role and they have great experts, just no question. But as you said, great experts can also mark their own homework. So that's the concern that we have is that we don't want just a one-sided view of this whole situation. I think that the the sad truth is that those types of organizations often go through lobbying groups. And so it's to them, the lobbying representation and to government to be the advocates for those types of organizations. I think what's also lost is that, you know, I talk with our customers every day. I talk with dozens of customers and they're all interested in using generative AI in various ways. And they are all nervous about using generative AI for a lot of very valid reasons. And they're looking to government. They're looking for regulation. I think at this point, we kind of all are and saying, what are the rules we need to play by? And so I think it actually would be very beneficial for companies, whether it's via lobbying groups or separately, if they have access, which of course means they're probably bigger, but to state what they're interested in doing with AI. What is it that's really compelling for their organization? And what are the things that worry them? Or to be able to say to the government, you know, we want to be able to use AI here and here. What do we need to think about? What are we missing? Because frankly, those are the things that are likely to flip through the cracks and become those under the cover kind of things that you don't know are there, but are lurking and causing problems. So what you're saying is it's also dependent on some of these institutions to step up and get their voice heard also. I think it would help. I don't know how many of them will actively seek more regulation. <laughs> that makes sense. But I think that it would be beneficial if governments called upon organizations and said, what is it you're looking to do? And what are the things that we would be concerned about or what have you? And take that on board as well. Of, you know, what are some of these opportunities that could cause problems? Alexia, this has been tremendously helpful, very insightful. Our listeners, in many cases, are people on the Hill. We have members of Congress, their staff listening. They come in on the show. Your voice is going to get heard. So thanks again for being here, and hopefully we'll get you back again. So thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.